Well, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17, in God's Word, to Luke 17, where you'll find your place in verse 20. And this morning we're going to read from verse 20 through chapter 18, verse 8. And it's interesting to reflect upon this season of Advent, and this, uh, when we reflect upon the coming of Christ, the incarnation of our Lord, and especially in those hymns that we've sung together, I'm always struck by the way in which these hymns that speak of the birth of our Lord very often in the second, third, and fourth verses and so on point us forward beyond the birth of Christ to His second coming. And that's the subject that we're going to take up and read about um, this morning as we look at Luke chapter 17 beginning in verse 20. The coming of the kingdom and the coming of the Christ uh, from our perspective as we learn to look to Him and live by faith. So if you found your place... Luke 17, 20, would you follow along with me as I read? Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not see it, and they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, and marrying, and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down, but take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Father in heaven, 
We do pray now that as we read your word, spoken through your Son, given for our edification and for our strengthening and for our faith, we pray that you would so work in our hearts by giving us of your Spirit to impart these words to our hearts and to our minds. Help us to hear them with faith. Help us to hold them fast in faith. Help us to believe, indeed, that Jesus will come again and look forward to that day with eager expectation, saying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. God has always called His people to live by faith. Even since the very beginning, in the garden, when God gave Adam a command, He called him to live by faith. He told him not to eat of the fruit of a particular tree, for in that day he would surely die. And we would say, well, that sounds much more like a law. And yet, Adam had to keep that law by faith. For he had no way, except by testing the command, to verify whether it was true. He could either take God at his word, believe that God is good, for he made all things good, and that God knows all things and is wise, and has guided him rightly, or he could put the Lord to the test and so take the fruit and eat it to see if what God said was really true. We know the outcome of that uh, time in the garden, that Adam did not hold fast his faith, and so he and Eve fell and plunged all humanity into sin. And so it's not easy for us either, as Adam's children, to live our lives in faith, to trust because, like our first parents, we crave the confirmation that comes through our senses. We want to see and to hear, to taste and to touch, or else we will not believe. Like Adam, however, we can be deceived by appearances. For only God has seen all that has been, all that is, and all that will be. And He is good, so only He can instruct us concerning unseen things. Therefore, this craving for sensory confirmation will undo our faith if we let it rule in our minds and our hearts. It's the idea behind the phrase, trust but verify, which is rightly applied in certain contexts. But in this context, with respect to God, it's not so rightly applied because it's not a real trust, but it's one that must verify that someone remains trustworthy. But we don't have the means to look into everything, especially when God speaks about things that are unseen or things that are to come. And so it falls to us to trust on the basis of God's proven faithfulness and the proven truthfulness of His Word that He indeed speaks rightly. If we give in instead to the desire to confirm all things with our sight and with our senses it will undo our faith. Our faith will unravel. That is the warning that we see in the text before us as Jesus calls His disciples and some Pharisees to live their lives by faith. He calls them to live by faith as citizens in a kingdom that is presently unseen while they wait for the day when our Lord will be revealed from heaven. In that day He will be seen by all and in that day He will complete His saving work for all who have looked to Him in faith. But we cannot wait till that day to believe because we've seen. We must believe now and endure in that faith if we hope to be saved in that day. 
As we look at this text, what we see is that it begins with a question from the Pharisees. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they are asking him this question, when is the kingdom of God coming? They don't say, when will it come in terms of the future? It's more of a, like when a child asks, are we there yet? They, they, they have this expectation that the kingdom is coming and they're not, their expectation is not unwarranted. For Jesus did come proclaiming a kingdom. We remember all the way back to Luke chapter 1 when Gabriel visited Mary and Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1, 32 and 33 that he will receive from God the throne of his father David and a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that is unshaken, one that will endure forever. And so in the course of his life, when Jesus came into his ministry, he went out proclaiming the good news the gospel of the kingdom of God, to town after town, preaching the kingdom, that the kingdom is at hand, and teaching his disciples to proclaim that the kingdom is near. We have seen that as we've journeyed through Luke. And as we have, Jesus has taught his disciples and others who will listen concerning the nature of this kingdom. So the Pharisees aren't wrong to say, when is the kingdom coming? But there seems to be a wrong expectation of how it will come in their minds. Essentially, Jesus' answer in these first two verses is simple. It's here. The kingdom is here now. It has come. But Jesus tells them the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. This is a unique word. It's nowhere else in the New Testament. But in other literature outside the Scriptures, it was used by the Greeks to speak of heavenly signs and you know, the work that people would look as they looked at astronomical signs and tried to perceive times and seasons, what might be taking place. Perhaps that's what Jesus is saying and perhaps the Pharisees engaged in some sort of action like that. We also see a similar term, not the noun, but a verb form of this word in Luke itself where we see the Pharisees regularly standing and observing Jesus closely. You think back to when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. That passage begins with the Pharisees watching him, along with the scribes, intently observing him to see, will he heal on the Sabbath? And again in chapter 14, when Jesus dined with a Pharisee, we see that they were watching him carefully. They were observing what he would do. The idea is simple, whether it refers to the observation of heavenly signs or other things that might take place in reality. The idea is that of looking closely at things that can be seen externally, things that we can see with our senses, hear with our ears, things that we might even be able to touch. And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that are tangible like that. You won't be able to observe it. Nor will you be able to find it, he says. You won't be able to go around and say, look, it's here. Or there it is. It's not that is residing in a particular place right now. It's not like you can say, let's go to Jerusalem. There we will find the kingdom of God. Or let's go to Rome and there we will find the kingdom of God. You cannot say something like that. Look, here it is. Or there. Why? Because Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is present. <clears throat> but it's present in the midst of you. Now there's quite a bit of debate about what this means. If you're using the King James or the New King James Version, it reads, the kingdom of God is within you. But if you're using something like the ESV or the New American Standard, it's in the midst of you. 
I have to admit that I am going to go against most of the commentaries in my interpretation. I just want to be honest with you. Many faithful commentators take the uh, rendering that we see in the ESV in the midst of you, meaning something like this. The kingdom of God has come because the king is in your presence. And the reason why they would choose that meaning, other, as opposed to the meaning within you, is uh, because of the context, because Jesus is addressing Pharisees, and because of the way Luke describes the kingdom of God throughout his gospel and the way the kingdom of God is described in Scripture. There's a theological concern, and there's a contextual concern. Now, the word itself more commonly refers to something being inside of something. It's the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 23, 25 and 26, when he pronounces a woe upon the Pharisees. And he he says that they cleanse the inside of the cup, but outside, excuse me, they cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside they are full of greed and wickedness. They don't deal with the inner matters of the heart. They deal only with external signs, things that you could see and observe, external signs of religion. It's the same word in the Greek translation of the Psalm, the verse from Psalm 103 that we heard at the outset of our, our service this morning. In Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And this is a very consistent usage in the Old Testament and then in that one other instance in the New Testament that I just mentioned from Matthew 23, which I note is Jesus' words addressed also to Pharisees. He's speaking, I suggest, about internal matters of faith, the evidence of faith that, that, uh, that, that is rooted within us versus external matters of religion. But the reason why people take it to be in your presence, as if to say the, re- the kingdom has come because Jesus is present, because he is the king and he is here now, is because of the context. The first reason is he's addressing Pharisees. And in that context, as he addresses Pharisees, it's hard to believe that he would say to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within you. But it's easier to see that he would say, the kingdom of God is in your presence. This is a, a strong argument. And the other ar- reason is because of the way that Luke describes the kingdom of God, they doubt that Luke's description of the kingdom of God, and the unfolding revelation of that kingdom, involves an, uh, a kingdom that comes within before it comes without. I want to deal with both of these ideas because I think that we can resolve those and then, having resolved them, see that the more common meaning of this word makes a great deal of sense. The idea that the kingdom comes within you. It is present within you. You see, the fundamental problem for the Pharisees was that they thought that faithfulness could be seen in external acts of religion. That's why Jesus said to them in those words from Matthew, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And calling them fools, he asked, Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. Their religion was all show. Their religion was hypocrisy. And Jesus warned his disciples to keep free and far from it. The faith he taught was not the faith of outward acts and hypocritical religion, but of inner faith that is of true religion. For this reason, most of the Pharisees did not follow with Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why it's hard to believe Jesus might say this to some Pharisees. 
They thought that by watching him closely in his actions and in his associations, they could discern whether or not he truly came from God, either as a prophet or as the Christ. Not seeing what they expected, they rejected him. When he healed on a Sabbath, they were indignant. When he ate with tax collectors, they grumbled. And when he ignored their traditions, they were appalled. Moreover, when he contradicted them, they plotted against him. When he called them to repentance, they refused him. When he condemned their hypocrisy, they threatened him with traps. And when he instructed them in wisdom, they mocked him as though he were the fool. Nevertheless, Luke's picture, though it's very consistent with regard to the Pharisees, that they are, they are focused on outward religion, it's not monolithic. It's not the same for every Pharisee in regard to the way they respond to Jesus. Luke does not present them as all the same in this way, and with good reason. In the early church, Luke will show us in the book of Acts that there were Pharisees who came to faith in Christ. And yet, some of those Pharisees were still living that kind of outward legalistic style of religion. And so they became known as what was called the circumcision party. They were telling people, it's great that you have salvation by faith. That's necessary. But you also have to be circumcised in order to be saved if you're a Gentile. They were still focused on outward signs of religion. They were still applying the strictness of their religion. And they didn't all, in Luke's demonstration individually, apply that strictness in the same way. Remember that Paul was a Pharisee before he came to Christ, and if it were up to him, he would have killed all the Christians as soon as he was able. But he was taught at the feet of another Pharisee named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was much more cautious, much more reasoned, so that we see in Acts 5, as Luke tells it, that when the apostles were in their hands and had been arrested, he counseled that they should release them for caution's sake, that they should, not, uh, they should not risk opposing God in case that God is really at work among them. Even in Luke's unfolding account, we see that some Pharisees were very quick to plot against Jesus. After he healed the man with the withered hand in Luke 6, they went out and held counsel how to destroy him. But then others joined later in Luke eleven fifty three. after Jesus pronounced a series of woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees. They went out trying to trap him. Then in Luke 19, we see that there are more among the religious leaders in Israel who are gathered, who are trying every day to figure out how they might catch Jesus in something he might do or say. Still others, like Simon the Pharisee from Luke 7, and like the Pharisee who hosted Jesus to a dinner in Luke 14, were open-minded to Jesus because they were still eating with him. They were still listening to them. He was, they were still receiving his counsel, his rebukes, his challenges in different ways. And so the Pharisees were not a monolithic group. Some would come to faith. Most would reject him. Not all would reject him in the same pace. Nothing in this text leads us to believe that these particular Pharisees are questioning Jesus in a way that is uh, malicious or a way that is deceptive or secret. And so it's quite possible that these Pharisees are really open to following Jesus, but they have not yet understood and internalized and grasped the reality of the kingdom that it works within us, not primarily without us, outside of us, that is. That it works through an inward change of heart and then outward signs of faith will flow, will grow, will come in the fruit of an inward change of heart. I think that's Luke's portrait of the Pharisees. I think it's a fairer portrait. It's a more complete portrait. It's a more nuanced portrait. And so we can understand how Jesus might address the Pharisees in this way. 
But then the question comes, does Jesus ever describe the coming of the kingdom of God in terms of an inward change first? And one of the reasons why people reject this is because many liberal scholars have taken this verse and tried to prove that the kingdom has no future physical reality on earth, which I think we don't need to dismiss by interpreting this verse differently. We just need to dismiss by continuing to read this chapter. It's very, very clear. I don't need to exegete that for you. I don't need to explain the text. The Son of Man is coming. And when He comes, a radical change will take place. But Luke does show that the kingdom first comes within us. Where? Remember that parable of the sower. A man goes out sowing seed. And how Jesus interpreted that that parable. The seed is the word of God. The sower then is the preacher of the word. And the soil are the people who receive that word in one way or another. For some, the birds come and snatch it away so that the word is not received in their heart. That's using Matthew's language of that parable. For some, the thorns and the thistles choke out out the word so that they're not fruitful. For some still, the scorching heat rises and because it's on rocky soil, it doesn't have any root and it withers. And Jesus interprets this as the trials of life or the wealth and the concerns of life that draw us away from faith in Christ, yet still some soils, some people, that is, receive the, the, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom in their hearts with faith. And why do I say it's the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom? Because at the outset of that passage, before Jesus preached the parable of the sower, we see that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and when he interpreted that parable to his disciples, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does come within as men and women receive God's word with faith and so submit themselves to his rule. A kingdom has a king, but it also has a people. And the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, does not come as it gains Territory on earthly soil first. That will happen in a moment, in an instant. It comes as it gains territory in the soil of human hearts. I think that's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. And they really need to hear it. Because they are always tempted, even as though some Pharisees come into the number of his disciples, they're always tempted to look at the outside things, to look at the external things, to look at the external matters of faith, and to focus on those aspects of the faith. And Luke is showing, or Jesus is showing them, and Luke is showing his readers in the early church that those Pharisees in their midst who might still be doing that kind of thing are not in step with Jesus' teaching to the Pharisees when he was with us. He taught us that the kingdom first comes as a matter of internal faith. And then, when he comes again, it will be fully seen. And so we must believe that the kingdom is present. We cannot verify it. We cannot see it, but it is within us. And like scientists who can never see and never have seen an electron, that can know an electron is there because they have technology and methods that they trust to show them that the electron is there, we can perceive the reality of the kingdom and the reality of faith even though we cannot see it presently in the lives of God's people as they receive the word and plant it in their heart and so produce the fruit of faith in their lives, inexplicably, only according to the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts and in their lives. We do see signs, and we can then reason back to know truly 
but we cannot yet see the kingdom in its fullness. But we believe it, and we have good reason to believe. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees at the outset of this passage. But in the second step then, he turns his attention to his disciples. And as he looks to his disciples, he speaks of things that will come. Not things that have come, but things that will come. First, he speaks of days that will come and says, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. and You will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go out to follow them. Notice how that phrase mirrors what we read with Jesus saying to the, speaking to the Pharisees. They desire to see a kingdom that they could visibly and tangibly confirm with their eyes and with their ears and with their keen observation. And Jesus tells his disciples, the same trap will come upon you, for days are coming that are going to make you want one of the days of the Son of Man. Whether that's looking back to the days when he was with them on earth, or looking forward to the days when he will come again. They're going to long for those days. Why? Well, Jesus, remember back in uh, chapter 5 of Luke's gospel, how people asked him, why don't your disciples fast? And he said, it wouldn't be appropriate for them to fast because the bridegroom is with them. He's speaking about himself. That it'd be like attendance to the bridegroom fasting at his wedding feast. It makes no sense. But then he says, but the days are coming, just like here, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will mourn, and then they will fast. And so too, as we look at this text, he says the days are coming, implying those trials that will come in that day when he is taken away. Trials that he spoke about in chapter 12 when he said that they will deliver you over to synagogues to be uh, destroyed and to be beaten and to be persecuted. And that will be your opportunity to testify. Those realities of life in this age between Christ's comings will make us long and do make us long for His coming, saying, Come, Lord Jesus. We long to see just one of those days. And Jesus says, You will long to see it. But that creates a unique temptation because as we crave that sight, Jesus has warned in many places, and so He warns here, that false prophets and false Christs will come, and people will come and say, Look, here He is in the inner room. Look, there He is in this far-off land. And Jesus says, don't go after them. In other words, don't believe them. I've described some of those kinds of cults that have uh, grown up on those sorts of preachings in times past. And to us, they seem like a strange thing. And yet our Lord and His apostles have taught us that there is is a day coming when one will arise, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, who will have all signs and wonders, and he will be very deceptive. People will want to go after him. We don't know if that will happen in our day or if we will simply look and consider and see those who come before him who are like him. But we know that these things can be quite deceptive because we crave what we can see. And yet Jesus says, with what we've heard, don't go after them. So when we see that kind of person, that kind of false teacher, that even false Christ coming... We can see that as confirmation that Jesus' words are true, not that these individuals are to be followed. That's the danger that the disciples would face in those days of trial. And it's the danger that all of Christ's disciples face throughout this whole period as we wait for His coming. 
And why should we not believe people who might say that Jesus has come in secret or the Christ has come again? The answer is because Christ's coming will be seen very clearly by all, and when he comes, it will bring judgment upon all who do not believe, and it will bring salvation to all who do believe. Here he says that when he comes, it will be like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. In other words, in the basis of the analogy, when lightning flashes in the sky, we all see it, and it doesn't matter if you are on the other side of Coloma or here. We will all see it if we're looking at the sky. So too, in that sense, for the whole wide world all around, when Christ returns, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, then we will all see Him. He won't be hidden from the sight of any person. Anyone who says He's come in secret is ignoring His clear teaching about that day. But first, He says that He must be rejected. The Son of Man must be rejected he must be, suffer many things by this generation. We'll come back to those words in a little bit. But here Jesus speaks a confusing thing about himself. You know, he uses this language, son of man, and that harkens back to Daniel chapter 7. But it was also an idiom in the Hebrew language that was carried over into the Greek language. You see it all the way through Ezekiel where God addresses the prophet Ezekiel as son of man. It's like saying human being. It's like saying human person, son of Adam, right? Well, he's saying son of man. It identifies him with humanity. And yet when we consider what Daniel 7 shows us, where Daniel saw a vision of three, four successive kingdoms, great and terrible, persecuting God's people, and then he saw a final kingdom that was delivered over to one like a son of man who came to the ancient of days on the clouds, riding like God, it emphasizes both his humanity and his transcendence. The one who receives the internal kingdom is one who is God incarnate. He is both man and he is God. He is the son of man, but he is the transcendent ruler and maker of the universe. The one who is both God and with God, the very son of God. And that's what they would expect about the Son of Man. Flashing like lightning, okay, we expect that. A glorious appearing, okay, we expect that. But not verse 25, even though he's predicted it many times already. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This reminds us of chapter 9, when Jesus was predicting the first and second time that he must suffer and die. The words are quite the same, precisely from that passage. And so it calls to mind all that he must do. He must not just suffer and be rejected. He must die on the cross to be killed by the religious leaders. And he must, in dying after three days, rise. And so in doing this, pay the debt that we owe. Die for our sins. This is a necessary thing before the kingdom can come in its fullness. It's a necessary thing because a kingdom, as I said, is not just a king, it is a people. And if Christ does not give his life on the cross, there is no people of the kingdom. But there are people of the kingdom because the Son of Man came not to ser be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many to redeem us from our sins and from our slavery to sin. He came to atone for our sins in that full and final way. This happened, had to happen before he comes again. Then 
He will come again, verse 26. And just as it will be seen by all, it will bring a judgment upon all. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now Luke uses days of the Son of Man and day of the Son of Man. That can be confusing because you have the, both the plural days and the singular days and you want to say, which is it? And there are many ways to answer that and I'll simply tell you how I think, uh, what I think is going on. When Luke uses the plural, days of the Son of Man, he associates it with judgment only. But when he uses the singular day of the Son of Man in this text, he adds another association, namely the revelation of Jesus. The day of the Son of Man, the same as what we call the day of the Lord, using language from other parts of the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Bible. The day of the Lord and the day of the Son of Man is the day of His glorious appearing. But the days of the Son of Man, or the days of the Lord, have their final fulfillment in that great day when He was revealed. But there are other days when God brings judgment upon people. The most Stand, the example that stands out most in history is that day in 70 A.D. when God brought judgment upon Jerusalem and the city and the temple were destroyed one final time because that generation had rejected the Son of Man in His day. I think that's how what Jesus, what, what, what Jesus is saying here when He distinguishes between days and day. But nevertheless... In that judgment, whether it's of one of the days or the day itself, it will bring judgment upon all. He likens it to the days of Noah. He likens it to the days of Lot. And this is a different picture than what you see in other texts that speak about the coming of the Son of Man. Other texts often speak about great cataclysms that will come upon uh, various parts of the earth. Earthquakes and famines in different places. Other texts speak about wars and rumors of war. But this text speaks about daily ordinary life. Just as those things will be taking place on various corners of the globe, so too many people will be living life just like they've always lived. They're not thinking about judgment. They're not thinking about the coming of the Son of Man. They're thinking about today and tomorrow. They're eating and they're drinking. They're starting families, giving in marriage, being given in marriage. They're eating and they're drinking. They're starting businesses. They're selling and buying, planting and building. That's the picture of many. And it's not that we should not do those things and think about today or think about tomorrow, but we should not be exclusively given to those things without a consideration for the future. The thought ran through my head recently. One of the men in our church was telling me about a baseball player who re re recently received a contract for something like $700 million over 10 years. But then I read a subsequent article where he said uh, he, he agreed to defer the payment of that contract for something like seven years so that the team would have more money to get better players to surround him with. And of course this person is all, already amazingly rich and so it didn't mean so much to him at the moment. But I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if Jesus comes back before he gets to cash in how he'll feel about that day. It's a silly thing to think perhaps, but he's only thinking about today and tomorrow and these earthly things. That's the idea. 
And so too, this is the picture on the day when the Son of Man comes. Many will not be living with an eye to that day. And so thinking both about today and tomorrow and, and the, the necess necessities of life, but more importantly, about those eternal realities that bear upon that day. Well, that's what we can expect with the coming of the Son of Man, and it will bring judgment upon them all. Just like in the days of Noah, just like in the days of Lot, the destruction came on all. Not some, but on all when the Son of Man comes. But for us, we're called to live a different way in light of that day. We're called to live as people who don't find our hope and our kingdom in this world, but look to that kingdom that is to be revealed fully when the Son of Man is revealed from heaven. And so he says to us in verse 31, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back, remember Lot's wife. She turned back, as it were, to go back to Sodom when the family was fleeing the destruction God brought there in the book of Genesis, and she was turned to a pillar of salt. She was judged as well. We're not to be like that. The imagery here is, is imagery that could be applied specifically to what Christians did when they saw the armies surround Jerusalem in the run-up to 70 A.D. They did not go back to get what was their possessions, but they fled the city, they fled the fields, they did not turn back. But the application in our context is given to us in verse 33, which reminds us of language again from chapter 9. Luke, over and over again, uses words again to increase that resonance, to, to show us that this is a very important theme and idea for God's people. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And we remember him saying, the one who loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. In those days that are coming that he warned his disciples about, they will be difficult days. But if, if we are faithful, even unto death, we will save our life because we are people who fear not those who can destroy the body and have nothing left they can do. But we fear the one who has the power to throw body and soul into hell, as our Lord taught us. And so we ought to be that kind of people, willing to lose even our lives in order to save our lives eternally. And indeed, in that day, just as the judgment will come upon all, all who believe will be saved. And here we see that division, that separation taking place. There are two in the bed. Again, we see a picture of ordinary life. There are two at the mill, a picture of ordinary work, grinding at the mill in those days. And one is taken, one is left. The idea here being taken away for salvation and one being left for judgment. That corresponds to the imagery of Lot being taken from the city of Noah, being taken into the ark, being taken away for salvation. That's what will take place on that day. That's when our salvation will be fully realized. So the disciples ask, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In other words, it will be manifest before your eyes just as you know where the carrion is, just you, where you know where the dead beast is, even if the grass is tall, because you can see the vultures circling around. So also, this day, as we've seen again before and we'll see again, will be visible and manifest to all. How do we 
live then in light of that day? How do we think about that day? I did not need to be creative in trying to apply that because Jesus himself in a, in a parable applies it for us. But first we do need to consider how we will be saved in that day. Notice again that Jesus said that it's necessary that the Son of Man should be rejected by this genera- generation. In the prior verse where he said this same thing, he said it's necessary that he must be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. They are the present manifestation in Jesus' day of this generation that always opposes the Christ. But we ought not to be a people that reject him, but believe in him, even when we cannot see him present with us. This is necessary. We must be people of faith if we are to be saved in that day. And our faith must endure as he taught us. That is, earthly possessions cannot be so important to us that we would turn away from following Christ to go back to them, to love them. Nor can our preservation of our earthly life in the face of trials and tribulations be so important to us that we would, go, we would seek to avoid those things rather than follow Christ. We must have a faith that endures to the end, one that is fixed upon Christ until the day when He appears in heaven. Only then will we be saved in that day. And as we wait for that day, we can demonstrate that enduring faith by persevering in prayer. Right at the outset, Jesus tells us, Luke tells us, why Jesus told this parable to His disciples, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And in the context of, The prayers that they're offering are prayers for vindication, prayers that God would intervene to save them. I think about those days of trial, those days of difficulty. God's people are treated wrongly. God's people, when they are persecuted for the sake of the gospel, are treated unjustly. They are treated wrongly. And there's a great temptation to take matters into our own hands and to avenge ourselves. But God's people here are called to be people who pray to the just judge of all the earth, that he will do what he has promised to do. He has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He will vindicate his people. We leave that to him, as only he is able to perfectly do. So we have this picture then. It's a picture that shows us that God is greater than even this unjust judge. You have an unjust judge who we already see does not fear God. He doesn't care what men think. He doesn't care about what's righteous before God or men. And so this woman who has a just complaint pleads to him for vindication, but he does care about one thing, his own comfort, and she's a nag to him. She's becoming an annoyance. She comes to him again and again, and so finally he says, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice. He doesn't want to, but he'll do it so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And what are you to understand? God's not like him. God is so much better than him. This is also a foundation for our faith. God has demonstrated in many manifest ways that he is the God of steadfast love. He is the God of faithfulness. That we are his children, he has declared, if we are found in Christ. Christ came, in fact, to make us children of God through adoption as sons. This is a great promise that God has given us. It's true. And so when he comes to it, 
and says, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? He asks two rhetorical questions for which the answer is clear. No, he will not. He will give justice to them speedily because he is the God of righteousness, the God of justice, the God of faithfulness, and the God of steadfast love. He loves us with an everlasting love. And if it seems to us like he delays in his coming, it is so that more might receive his grace and mercy, so that more might repent and believe. But it is not because he does not care, and it is not because he is unjust. He will give us justice speedily. But there is a third question then that is left open. When he does, when the Son of Man comes, where will we be? Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? God is faithful. God does not change. But we change. In the words of Revelation, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Our faith is seen when we endure, and we can demonstrate that enduring faith by praying and praying and praying. Like a child who comes to her father and says, can I have that cookie? And will not stop asking until he says yes. God invites us to pray and to pray and to pray that he will give us justice and he will come to save us until our Lord comes again. And he will surely come. So let us be found with faith on that day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray now that you would grant us such faith, that we might be people who pray always for that justice that only you can provide, not seeking to take matters into our own hands and not following those who would lead us astray by our sight, but rather following the one who demonstrated himself true and faithful in his life on earth, your Son, our Lord. May we trust him always, for we can be deceived by what we see, but we will never be deceived by him. So we pray to, that you would keep us as only you can keep us, so that we might keep your command to keep ourselves in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.